Welcome. Let's read together from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. I'm reading from the NIV translation. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. I love the halfway point in any journey. If Gwen and I are going on a walk, halfway usually means a a pub and a meal and a drink and a chance to rest. I especially love the halfway point when I'm on a run. It means I'm nearly there. It means it really is better to keep going than to go back to where I started. The halfway point means that you need less energy to complete your journey than you've already used up. It feels like you're now going downhill towards the finish line. And we are halfway on our journey through Exodus. We're halfway in in our walk through Exodus in terms of the number of sermons we're preaching on it and the weeks we're spending in it. But also for the Israelites, these verses, this arrival at Sinai is the halfway point, or at least it should have been. Spoiler alert, it takes them a bit longer to get to the promised land than was intended. But this was meant to be the halfway point. Where then have we got to? Well, I love a good map, and here's a good map. As Sean showed us a couple of weeks ago, God has not led the people by the most direct route. You can see in this map, if you draw a straight line between Egypt and the Promised Land, it's not that long a journey, and yet God seems to have led them way out of the way. In fact, at this moment, the people are further away from their destination than when they started. There's already been some grumbling. This is what it says in chapter 15, verse 24. When they came to Marah, They could not drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Now, I know none of us ever grumble when things seem to take longer than they should, but the people are grumbling, and they're probably asking this question, God, why have you taken us the long way round? Surely it would have been more miraculous for God to do it in super quick time. Surely a rapid journey would have been more impressive. People would have gone, wow, they covered that journey twice as quickly as ever, anybody's ever done it before. 
And yet God takes them all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula, to the desert of Sinai, to the mountain of Sinai. Why? Why does God take them the long way round? Why does God take us the long way round? Remember, we're following this journey and we're trying to learn from it. And it's a question we often ask. Why does God make us wait? Well, here are some answers from the Exodus journey. The first answer is this. Transformation takes time. And God doesn't just want to meet with a people, he wants to transform a people. We like to go from A to B as quickly as possible, especially in our culture. The destination is often of primary importance. But for God, it's about transformation. For God, it's about process. God is literally creating physical distance from the, between the people and where they were, Egypt. God is creating physical distance and through that, through the physical distance and the time it's taking, he is also creating cultural distance. God is trying to rid his people of all traces of Egypt. And the need for that is demonstrated in the scripture. It's demonstrated in another moment when the people grumble. This is in Exodus 16. It says this, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around, pots of meat, and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve. I mean, what are they doing? Have they forgotten so quickly what it was like in Egypt? Well, yes, they have. And God needs to get all of that Egypt out of them. God is about transformation. God is not just rescuing them from slavery, he is preparing them for freedom in the promised land. The second reason we see is that God wants the people to discover that walking with God should always take priority over arriving with God. God wants relationship before he wants kingdom activity. As one Christian leader put it, the work I thought I was doing for God, task, was destroying the work God wanted to do in me, relationship. God is as interested, in fact, God is more interested in his relationship with us as he is in what we might do or where we might arrive. God wants to remind the people and remind us that life is about presence and relationship and time with him. As Paul reminds us, we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another and that comes from the very presence of God. Thirdly, God takes them the long way round. God takes them to Sinai because that was always his plan. This is what it says in Exodus chapter 3. God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. 
and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God said, verse 12, I will be with you and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And when God says this mountain, where is Moses standing? He's standing in the desert at Horeb. And where is Horeb? It's another name for Sinai. Why has God taken them the long way round? Because God is bringing them to the point he said he would bring them. And what we see is as Moses returns to the place of the burning bush with the people, God is building faith. God is reminding Moses and through him the people, I am a God you can trust. I am a God who is faithful. I am a God who honours his promises. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses experiences supernatural fire in the bush. He experiences the holy presence of God in the bush. The voice of God reveals the name of God. And what is going to happen in these coming chapters? Well, they will experience supernatural fire on the mountain. They will be made aware of the holy presence of God on the mountain. The voice of God will reveal the law of God. They are where they are, not because God has got lost on his journey. It's not that God's supernatural sat-nav has gone wrong. No, God has brought them to the place that he needs them to be. And he brings them that he might have relationship with them and that they might worship him. We have, as we said, come halfway on our journey. God has completed part one of this journey to the promised land. We have at one point come to the end of the Greek name for this book. Cast your minds back to the beginning of our series and we reminded ourselves that when we talk about the book of Exodus, we're using the Greek title. And that Greek word literally means the way out. But the Hebrew name for this book is the people or these are the people or literally the names. And actually the Greek title for this book has served its purpose. They have been brought out. They have been rescued. Now we step into the Hebrew name. It's about the people. It's about the names. The name of God and the name of God's people. Our journey through this book, the Israelites' journey from Egypt to Canaan, is not just about rescue. It's all about identity. It's not just about an event, it's about a people, it's about who they are. So what happens? What happens here at this halfway point? Well, when we understand where we are in the Exodus narrative, we begin to understand what is happening and why it is happening. I think sometimes, because of the Hollywood movies and, and our own memories, we forget how long the people are at Sinai. 
what we know about Sinai maybe, we've been a Christian a while and we know there's a mountain and we know there's some tablets and, and in our heads we maybe think, well Moses pops up, gets the tablets, comes down, there's rebellion, another spoiler, he goes back up, gets the second lot, comes down and off they go. What do you reckon? Three, four weeks? They are at this mountain, in, encamped in this desert for 11 months, for nearly a year. Moses actually makes seven trips up the mountain over the next 15 chapters. The people remain encamped at this mountain for 11 months. Canonically, as in the books of the Bible, the rest of Exodus, the whole of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of Numbers all cover this period of time. Numbers 10 verse 11 says, On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai. Eleven months. David Pawson describes the mountain at Sinai as God's pulpit, created beforehand by God for this moment when God will declare to his people how they are to behave. It's a nice image. And it's not inaccurate because it is at Sinai that the people of God receive the law of God. God's standards, God's boundaries for a fruitful life lived in relationship with him. We will examine parts of that law over the coming weeks, as over the next three weeks we unpack the Ten Commandments, the, the summary of the law. God draws together the whole of the law in these ten headings, ten words they're sometimes talked about. It's important for us to remember how that law is broken down. I mean, we could, spend, we could spend another 20 weeks unpacking the law of God. But we need to be aware the law of God has three main elements. Ceremonial, civil, and moral. Sometimes we kind of can read a part of the law and think, how does that apply to us today? Well, here's a quick guide. Here's a two-minute guide to understanding the law. Firstly, there is ceremonial law. All the laws about sacrifice and worship and dealing with sin. We know that all of those laws point to Christ and have been fulfilled in Christ's life, death, resurrection, ascension. So if you are coming across a bit of the law that's to do with sacrifices and sin, you can know oh, it's been fulfilled. I don't have to find an animal to kill, a pigeon or a dove or, or a lamb. That has been done. Then you would have civil law, principles for the people of God in how they live out in their context. If you want to know whether something is a part of the civil law, think about is it about clothes, is it about fields, is it about food. If it's about those sorts of things, that's very often civil law. If somebody's in relationship with God, how does that apply to how they farm, to how they eat, to how they dress, to how they cut their hair? They are largely contextual to do with a certain point of time, but there would be principles in there which would help us. Then you have moral law. Moral law is to do with 
character, to do with holiness, and often to do with justice. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled. The civil law is often time-specific. The moral law is eternal because it expresses the love of God. And we know that love is what remains. How we treat one another, how we care for the poor. These are eternal principles to love one another. As I said, that's a two-minute guide. And over the coming weeks, we'll unpack some of the Ten Commandments. But hopefully they're helpful. So we're at the halfway point. God has taken us the long way round because he wants transformation. He wants relationship because he is sovereign and faithful. God has brought his people to this pulpit to declare his law. Why does it matter? Why is it happening? We now know what's happening, but why is it happening? And why does it matter to us? Well, here we return to the verses we read at the beginning. See, as we've said, actually, we're going to spend a while at Sinai. You know, the, the next 21 chapters of Exodus unpack what happens in these 11 months. It would have taken us a while to read all those chapters. We just read six verses. But those six verses actually are an introduction that an overview of everything that is to come and they unpack for us why these moments are important to the Israelites and why they're important to us. Let me read them again for us. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had left out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Can you see how it's an introduction to everything that is going to come? It's a summary. These verses remind us again that God has brought them out, God has rescued them to bring them in. Not just into another land, but into a relationship with him. We've already reminded ourselves that one of the reasons that God commissions Moses at Sinai is to bring people to Sinai that they might worship there. So now in these opening verses we hear God's purpose. God's purpose is this. He wants to remind them and us that obedience follows rescue and obedience enhances relationship. If you like, we have rescue, then we have rules, then we have relationship. How do these verses explain that to us? 
Well, in chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, we have context. God reminding Moses again what he had, where they are. Reminding us where they are. You see, the law was not given to the people when they were in Egypt. God did not give them a set of laws in Egypt. God did not meet with Moses at the burning bush and say, I've heard the cry of my people. Now, here is the law, here's ten commandments. Take these to the people in Egypt. Let them know if they are obedient to these laws, I will rescue them. That's not what God did. God met with Moses and said, I have heard the cry of my people who are enslaved. I am going to rescue them. You go and tell Pharaoh to let them go. God rescues them first. Gives them the law second. Rescue comes before rules. Obedience follows relationship. In verse 4, God uses God speaks in the past tense. What I have done. God is reminding them, I have rescued you. I did save you from Egypt. I have brought you this far. I have been with you. Notice God is saying, I have initiated this. You did not look for me. I came and found you. Rescue first. Then in verse 5, we get the first, if you obey. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did, past tense. Verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. The requirement, the rules happen because of what God has already done. Are you getting it? It's not that if we are obedient, God will rescue us. No, God has rescued us and in that freedom we can be obedient and what is the fruit of our obedience relationship and fullness of identity it's not even that we earn our identity God rescues the Israelites because they are his people God rescues us through Jesus because we are already loved we are already children of God our obedience means we can step into the fullness of what God has for us how wonderful how important God does not rescue them because they're good God does not rescue them because they've kept a set of rules God rescues them because he loves them what is the purpose of the law then well the purpose of the law is to give them boundaries that release them into the fullness of freedom unfortunately we live in a world today that sees boundaries as limiting And yet we actually know that boundaries are releasing. We love sports because there are rules. (laughs) Those boundaries keep us us safe. Kids play more freely in a playground that's got a fence. They know they're safe and they'll play right to the edge. Boundaries release us. 
And here at Sinai, Sinai, God is giving the people internal boundaries before he places them in a land which will give them external boundaries. Because God knows that fulfilling their purpose in the land will come about because they are fulfilling their internal boundaries, the gift of the law. This is why it's so important for us to know this story. It, it, it's so easy sometimes to think, oh, I must earn, I must be good, and forget grace. But God has saved us by his grace. And because of his grace, we can then step into obedience. We walk this tightrope, and we'll talk about it in our devotion this week, between cheapening grace and becoming legalistic. Sometimes we drift into legalism, oh, I must be good and then God will love me. Sometimes we drift into cheap grace or maybe license, oh, it doesn't matter what I do. Of course, it does matter what you do. It does matter what we do. It does matter how we live. The laws that God gave Israel mattered. They were important. But they weren't there that the Israelites could pr keep proving to God that they loved him and that he should love them. No, they were there to release the Israelites into fullness of life. And the same is true for us. Obedience to God does not replace grace. No, grace releases obedience to God. And obedience to God lets us live in the fullness of our identity. What does God say of the Israelites? He says this, you will be my treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is intimacy of relationship. This is powerful relationship. This is authority that we are given. The Israelites were given it. We are given it. But we must remember the process. It is not rules and if you keep the rules, then rescue and then relationship. No, it's rescue. I've heard the cry of my people and I'm going to set them free. And once they're free, I'm going to speak to them about what freedom looks like that they might step into glorious relationship. This is why Sinai matters. This is why Sinai mattered to the Israelites. It's why Sinai matters to us. Because through it, we step into all the freedom that we have in Christ.